for years, Beckett Cook had had a highly successful career as a production designer in the fashion world. During that time, he lived fully engaged as a gay man in Hollywood. Beckett Cook said, quote, I had many boyfriends over the years, attended pride parades, and marched in innumerable rallies for gay marriage equality. My identity as a gay man was immutable, or so I thought, he said. Then, in 2009, he experienced something extraordinary, a radical encounter with Jesus Christ while attending an evangelical church in Hollywood for the very first time. Here's what he says happened. Quote, I walked into the church a gay atheist, and I walked out two hours later a born-again Christian in love with Jesus. I was stunned by this reversal. Since then, I no longer identify as gay, but rather choose to be celibate because I believe God's plan and purpose revealed in the Bible is authoritative, true, and good. Surrendering my sexuality hasn't been easy, he continues. I still struggle with the thought of same-sex attraction, but denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Jesus is an honor. Any struggles I experience pale in comparison to the joy of a personal relationship with the one who created me and gives my life meaning. My identity is no longer in my sexuality. It's in Jesus. But instead of celebrating Cook for his authenticity, when he came out as a Christian to his friends, he was met with skepticism and in some cases, outright opposition. His closest friends abandoned him. His production design agency in Hollywood dropped him under the most vague and frivolous of pretexts, even though he was one of their top fashion designers. But Cook went on to say this, I'm not complaining or claiming to be a victim. What I gained in Christ is absolutely priceless. Like the Apostle Paul, I am learning to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Yes, the loss of close friendships and a lucrative career were harsh, but being in the kingdom of God more than compensates. Recently, Cook said this to a friend. I'm the most authentic person you know. In fact, because I'm now who God created me to be, I'm finally authentic, he said. Becoming more and more like Jesus, the truest human who ever lived, is far more authentic transformation than becoming more and more like whatever self, whatever identity, my fluid feelings suggest on any given day, end quote. Cook's testimony captures the power of what Paul is saying in our section here in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. You remember that the, Paul, the prayer that Paul prayed at the end of chapter 1 is that we as believers would know God, that we would know him, and that we would know him through the hope that God has called us to, the inheritance that he has prepared us for, and the power he has demonstrated not only through Jesus, but also in us, in the church, in raising the spiritually dead to spiritual life. 
And what we're learning more specifically here in chapter 2 about this power is that it's able to take those. The power of God, friends, is able to take those who are, th- who are near the revelation of God in Christ, as Paul says here. Near, meaning like the Jews, or we could say in our day, church-going folks. God's able to take the folks that are near the kingdom of God, and he's able to take those who are thought to be far off from the kingdom of God. Gentiles in Paul's day, or non-church-going people like Beckett Cook in our day, God is able to take both groups of people, and the power of the gospel is that he is able to take these two groups and make them one in Christ Jesus. And the reason God's able to do that is because Christ is our peace. Christ is the peace that is able to reconcile. It's able to reconcile sinners to God and then sinners one to another in the church. For the same message, the same message of peace is preached. It's preached to those who are, who are far off and to those who are near. And as a result, what we found last week is that in the church, we, have, we, we share this profound unity as the church. We have the same Savior. We have the same access in the same spirit to the same Father. That is true for all of us in Christ. This is how, by the way, you and I, we see the power of God at work today in the church. We see him in doing the seemingly impossible. What do I mean by that? By taking people from completely different backgrounds, different nationalities, different ethnicities, even different sexualities like Beckett Cook, and uniting them to the Messiah and uniting them one to another. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. What did Paul say? Creating one new man in place of the two. So the thing that we have to keep in mind as we now turn to verses 19 through 22 is that unity, unity is foundational to the church's identity. That unity that Christ has purchased for us is foundational to our identity as a church. Little theologians, we have a sermon outline for you kids uh, outside, Uh, but um, if you did not grab one, kids, I want to encourage you to draw I want you to draw, kids, uh, a picture of the three images that Paul uses here to describe the church. He uses the image of a kingdom, he uses the image of a family, and he uses the image of a temple, of a temple. And here are the questions, kids, that uh, that we are seeking to answer. We are seeking to answer what is our new identity in Christ, what is our new community in Christ, and what is our new source of power in Christ? Our new identity, our new community, and our new power in Christ. Now, the key question, we're going to answer those questions, of course. uh, But for all of us, the thing that I want to pose to you, I want you to consider, is what is, according to Paul, what is key, what is key to maintaining our unity in Christ? What is key to maintaining our unity in Christ? That's the main question I want us to answer. And the reason that's the main question is because that is the key question of our day, of our time that we are in. We are living at a time when disunity and division seem like foregone conclusions across the board. Ours is a world full of malice and hostility. Recent polls that I looked at this week demonstrate a fault line of division as the defining characteristic of of American society now. It used to be that you weren't supposed to talk about religion and politics with strangers. 
Now it seems that you're not supposed to talk about anything with strangers or with anyone for that matter. As I mentioned last week, we are around the clock constantly bombarded with information and opinions. And most of the time, those are negative. Just this past week, I read of the recent Dartmouth College study. Dartmouth College did a study. It was an economics professor. He did a study that ended up reporting that the major media networks in the United States reported nearly 90%, listen to this, 90% bad news during the COVID pandemic. 90% of the time, the news was reporting bad news compared to just 50 to 60% from major international news sources, media sources. So in our country, we like our bad news and we like it a lot. Also this week, there was footage of a director of one of those major networks openly admitting on camera to creating propaganda in order to manipulate their audience and using fear to advance the network's own agenda. I mention that not to make a political point, but to underline the point about us being constantly confronted with negativity. Negativity that is designed to produce what? More negativity, more negativity in your life, more negativity in my life, which in turn further divides and leaves us fractured as a society. And of course, this isn't unique to only our culture. Over the past year, we as the church in America have been faced with the same messages of negativity and hopelessness. And here's what I want to say. If we're not careful, we can begin to view the church through the lens of our world, through the lens of our culture, rather than through the lens of Christ and his word, specifically to what we find here in Ephesians 2. The timing, the relevance of this God-inspired text could not, be, could not be greater than it is right now. As we saw at the beginning of our section here in Ephesians 2, the human condition, here is the problem with the human condition. The human condition is prone to want to divide, want to separate. In the first century, the, the division, the separation that Paul is addressing in our text is the serious hostility that existed, the division that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus, who was a contemporary of the first century, of what happened in the first century, he was essentially a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. But he is a Jewish historian. He's not a Christian historian. He refers to the anti-Semitism that was ubiquitous in the Roman Empire when he notes that the Gentiles, quote, feel a hatred for our religion, which is undeserved and unauthorized. Josephus was saying that this is across the empire. People are resentful. People are hostile. They're bigoted towards Jews, Josephus said. It was this ill feeling that eventually led to the Roman Emperor Claudius. You remember in Acts 18, the, emperor, the Roman Emperor Claudius in the year 49 AD, he banished all Jews from Rome just before Paul arrived in Ephesus. This is when he met Priscilla and Aquila, and they had just been banned. from. They had just left Rome and had arrived in Ephesus. Right around the same time, another extra-biblical resource, the Jewish philosopher Philo. This is what Philo says. He records how the Gentiles in Alexandria, Alexandria that was in Egypt, they attacked the Jewish population there by burning them alive in the middle of the city. Men, women, 
and children. When the smoke cleared, 50,000 Jews lay dead in the streets of Alexandria. This is happening in the first century when Paul's writing these words. And of course, the Jews were not innocent in this regard either. The Jews viewed, they, they sneered, they had, their, they had their nose stuck up. They, they looked down upon Gentiles, the Jews did as well. Considered them dogs, considered them less than human as well. So the point that I'm making is that the same issues of racism, of nationalism, of partiality, of implicit bias, favoritism that plague our world today, they plague the world in the first century when those who, those who were uh, in power could, could uh, go and do essentially what they wanted to to those that they deemed inferior to them. And that is what was happening when Paul wrote these astounding words in verse 19. He says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, I, you can imagine at this point, based off what I just shared with you, how radical and impossible those words must have seemed to the Ephesian church. And for that matter, how radical and seemingly impossible they seem to us today. And we're predominantly a Gentile member church. We live in a time when the gospel has spread to every corner of the globe. And those who have been made fellow citizens are from all sorts of diverse backgrounds. But that is the point that we have to focus on here. The gospel, the gospel is the point of unity, not our diverse backgrounds. Now, what do I mean by that? The gospel, the message of salvation, first tells us this, friends. It first tells us that we're all unified together in sin, in sin. We all share the same fallen condition, the same helplessness, the same enslavement to the flesh, to the world, to the devil. This is what Paul pointed out in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was arguably the greatest preacher in the 20th century, this is what he says in his commentary on Ephesians 2. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. Quote, we are all equally sinners. That is the first step to unity, he says. Now, the unity he's talking about is inside the church. Before there can be unity, we must all be brought down to the dust. While any one of us is standing on his feet, as it were, and asserting himself, you will never get unity because he is boasting of something. He is holding on to something that is peculiar to him. You will never get unity in that way. We must come to an end of self, Lloyd-Jones says. But here, facing God in the gospel, we are brought to the dust. We are forced to see our, outer, our utter sinfulness, he says. And one by one, we see exactly where we are in God's presence, end quote. For what Lloyd-Jones is getting at is that the key, the key to seeing our unity in salvation is seeing our unity in our sinfulness. Unity in sinfulness, unity in salvation. We share the same peace, Christ is our peace, the same God and Father, the same cross of reconciliation and forgiveness, the same spirit that brings us together into one body in Christ. And all of that, all of that is objective. It's all objective so that we know it never changes. That never changes. We are united to Christ and to one another in salvation. Unity or unified in sin, unified in salvation. We have to see that 
as we come now to verses 19 through 22, the unity we share in the same status. Unity and status. We are unified in sin, unified in salvation. We are unified in status before God. That status can be seen in the three images that Paul uses here. He uses the image of a kingdom, of a family, and a temple. The first is the new identity, the new identity we share in being fellow citizens of God's kingdom. Notice how he frames it there. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are. You are. This is true of you. You are fellow citizens. Here we see the result. Here is the result of Christ being our peace. Number one, we are fellow citizens. You who were once far off. You who were once without God and without hope. You who were on the outside looking in. You who were foreigners to the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ. You are that no longer. You are fellow citizens, Paul says. This would have been shocking, shocking for the Ephesians, whether they were Jew or Gentile. And the reason it would have been shocking is because citizenship, Roman citizenship in the first century, was among the highest of privileges. Citizenship in the ancient world in the Roman Empire was not something you were simply born into like in our country, but something that was purchased by those with great wealth, great wealth. The vast majority of the people would have been considered either strangers or aliens to the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, those two words that Paul uses there, stranger and alien, alien they're meant to convey two things. They're meant to, they're meant to uh, convey exclusion and they're meant, to, uh, they're meant to convey that you had no civil rights uh, as, a, as a foreigner, as an alien to the kingdom. You were excluded from the kingdom. You had no civil rights in the kingdom. And Paul using these terms would have resonated very much with the Ephesian church. Because Ephesus, while it was part of the Roman Empire, it was outside of Italy. It would have been considered a place for strangers and aliens to live, not for Roman citizens to live. But Paul's taking it a step forward now because he is, a, he is applying this now in a spiritual sense. In other words, those who, are, those who are citizens of God's kingdom are there because God has, God has granted them that citizenship. They have been made citizens by God. So there are those who are citizens of God's kingdom and there are those who are not citizens of God's kingdom. And the difference between them isn't something external or superficial like money, education, or status. The difference is those who have been brought near by the blood of Christ and those who have not. Those who have responded to hearing that Christ is our peace. And the invitation that he makes, even to this day, through the preaching of that message. Jesus Christ preaching, Jesus himself preaching peace to those who are strangers and aliens even today. And through him, they become citizens of his kingdom. And this raises the very obvious question, the very practical question for each one of us in this room. Which one of these am I? Am I a stranger to these things? Are they alien to me? Do I understand the basic message, the basic message of Christianity, which is that all of humanity is alienated from God? And that only through Jesus can I be reconciled to him and be made a citizen of his kingdom. Only through Jesus can I receive the forgiveness of sins and be at peace with God. I can have the peace that surpasses all understanding. I can have the peace that surpasses, that transcends suffering, that transcends all the hardships of this life. 
Do I understand that? Do you understand that? And if you do understand that, have you responded to the message of peace? Have you responded to the message of reconciliation by faith? That's how you go from stranger and foreigner to the amazing privilege of this kingdom citizenship. And what's perhaps the most amazing thing about it, friends, is that it is a free invitation to you and I. It's a free invitation to you and I, but it costs God greatly. It cost him the blood of his son. It cost him the death of his son. It cost him the humiliation of his son. But Christ, Christ as the son of God, able to conquer, able to conquer that humiliation, able to overcome that, exalted to the right hand of God, his exaltation. And so this invitation of citizenship in God's kingdom can come to you and I freely this very day. You can receive it freely this very day. For, the, for, for those who wish to become a Roman citizen, most of them could not because of the extraordinary amount of money it would have taken to become a Roman citizen. But Paul is saying here to these Gentiles in Ephesus, you are kingdom citizenship. The privilege of God's kingdom, friends, is open to all, regardless of how we identify ourselves, regardless of what you and I struggle with or who we think we are. God's gracious invitation. Think about, think about the invitation. We've, we're wrapping up chapter 2. Do you, do you realize what this chapter has said about who God is? 1 through 22. God's gracious invitation in his rich mercy. God's gracious invitation in his great love. God's gracious invitation in his saving grace in raising those who are dead and condemned and raising them from that to spiritual life. God's gracious invitation in his down payment of eternal life that you and I taste and experience here and now. God's gracious invitation in his immeasurable riches of the kindness of his grace, Paul says. God's gracious invitation in being brought near to him and receiving forgiveness. Having peace that transcends life in a fallen world. And a peace that is able to deal with sin and conflict and relationships in a fallen world. And God's gracious invitation in being part of his new humanity in Christ that will inherit the new creation that is coming at the end of the age. All of those riches we have seen here in Ephesians 2. God's gracious invitation is offered to you this very day in his son. The gift of citizenship offered to you, offered to me. So I have a question for you. What are you struggling with today? What are you struggling with? Are you struggling with hidden and shameful sin? God's gracious invitation is that you can bring it to him and you can hear the gracious words of his pardon and forgiveness offered through repentance and faith toward the one who only can release us from our guilt and our shame. Are you struggling with doubt and unbelief today? God's gracious invitation is for you to confess along with a suffering father in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. To see the incredible restoration of Peter after he had denied Jesus three times. Or hearing the declaration of doubting Thomas after the risen Christ in his grace appears to Thomas. That's God's gracious invitation. Maybe you're here and you're struggling with fear and anxiety today. 
God's gracious invitation is that he offers you a new identity, kingdom citizenship that includes an, an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled and unfading, that is kept, that is guarded in heaven for you. A kingdom citizenship that delivers peace and joy in the midst of tribulation and suffering. Because you can see that through, that through that suffering, you can see it through the eyes of the one who likewise suffered. You can see it through the one who likewise experienced every human weakness, who experienced temptation just as we did. But yet he overcame that temptation. And who for the joy that was set before him, he embraced the cross, despising the shame. So that he might destroy for you and for me the one who has power over, the, over death, the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Those two things Jesus does. He delivers us from, from the tyranny of the devil and he delivers us from the tyranny of death. The point that I'm making is this, friends. Jesus isn't just for who you are on the outside. Jesus is especially for who you and I are on the inside, what we struggle with. Sexual sin, lust, anger, insecurity, fear, anxiety, addiction, unbelief, peer, or social pressure, whatever it is that our heart clings to, that our flesh tries to get, tries to get us to give ourselves over to. What we find here is that we have a new source of identity that we can cling to, that we can combat our flesh with, whose power is at work within us by the Spirit to make us more and more like himself. And that, friends, is a direct assault on the old nature that is passing away in us. You and I, you are, we are invited to this, to be united to Jesus and to become part of the new people of God who are citizens of his eternal kingdom that's the new identity that we're given and to underline this look at what paul says he says that we are fellow citizens with the saints he uses that word saints again saints are those who have been called and set apart by the will of god we do not make ourselves saints the very definition of the word implies that we are passive in it we have been set apart by god the father and what we mentioned when we looked at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, what we mentioned then, what, what I'm mentioning now is how crucial it is, listen to this, how crucial it is for us as Christians to get the question of identity right. If we profess Christ, but then we seek to define ourselves by something or someone else other than Jesus, then we risk, we risk merely being hearers of the word and not doers of the word, as James 1 talks about a doer is someone who lives by the word and what the word says and what the word teaches about how we are to live how we are to think about ourselves identity in other words james 1 tells us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word the implication there is that filthiness wickedness those are the things that are going to work against us that are going to try to counter counter us from living out the word filthiness rampant wickedness for Paul here in Ephesians, friends, the Christian, I, Christian's identity, you and I, our identity is one of being set apart by God for God as a citizen of his kingdom. And that implies that we are under his rule and under his reign as king. And the reason I'm making this point 
is because it's, it's critical for un- us to understand. Otherwise, there, there will be many other voices, many other voices in your life and in my life that will contradict Scripture here. They will contradict Scripture. They will say that you must identify yourself in terms of your gender, in terms of your sexuality, in terms of the color of your skin, in terms of who you voted for in the, next, in the last election, in terms of what you post or what you don't post on social media, what you think about this or what you think about that social issue, for example. These are the most common competing voices for us today, competing voices to God's voice in Scripture. How do you identify yourself? What I want you to understand, though, is that we can find comfort that our identity and our worth, our acceptance isn't found in this passing age. All of those things I mentioned, including the things about us, those are passing away, Scripture says. But our identity, our worth, our acceptance is found eternally in Christ and in his kingdom. This is why, for example, Paul says in Galatians 2, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ. Christ lives in me. That's who I am. That's who you are. I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the place of significance, friends. That's the place of security. It's not in me. It's not in my flesh. It's not in myself. That's the thing, according to Paul, that you and I, we have to die to. We have to die to. And this is revolutionary for us as kingdom citizens. We no longer have to strive to identify the right way or we have to act the right way. The good news is that the old self is dead. And behold, the new has come in your life. The new self, which is being renewed in holiness after the image of its creator. This kingdom identity, friends, is forever. It is forever. It's the eternal kingdom with the eternal king who has all authority in heaven and on earth whose kingdom and reign are ever-expanding, ever-increasing over this present age. I know it doesn't look like that from a human perspective, but here's here's the thing. It's only a human perspective. Keep that in mind. When you look out at the world and you are fearful, you are anxious, you are worried, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like God is in control. Remember, that is only a human perspective. God's perspective that he says in his word that you can count on, that you can build your life upon is Psalm 2 where he says to his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is the promise of God that you and I can trust, friends, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John says in Revelation 1 as he's sitting on the island of Patmos in prison for the gospel. God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign, our place in there doesn't change with circumstances. Even when they're as bleak and as drastic as being imprisoned. Even when they're as bleak and drastic as being rejected by society or rejected by your family or rejected by friends, your neighbors, whoever it may be. We have this identity, friends, that cannot be shaken. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. But it gets even better because we have a new community. We have a new community. Paul says that we are also members of the household of God. We are members of the same family. Paul began this by what he said back in verse 18, that we we both have access to the same father. 
And the image is that of being part of his family and that we are able to approach our Heavenly Father without any hindrance, without any obstacle. Because we are his family. And as his family, we are loved and we are cared for by our Heavenly Father. And that, that has personal implications for us as sons and daughters, but the thing I want to focus on as we draw to a close are the corporate implications for us as a church. The corporate implications. The implications are that we together, Paul goes on to say, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That's what defines us as God's household. The foundation is the apostolic, the prophetic ministry that comes through the ministry of the word. And the cornerstone, what set the foundation is Christ himself, Paul says. In a way, he's, he's reiterating what he has said in this section about the work that God has done through Jesus to bring his people together as one and that we share the same foundation, the same cornerstone together. And I point that out because that is, that is key to maintaining the unity for the one people of God that we are. The identity, the community that we share, remembering what it's all based upon. It's based upon Christ and his work, not on anything else. This is absolutely essential for our unity and love as a church. Because as he goes on to say, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. When the whole structure is right and joined together, built upon the correct foundation with the correct cornerstone, then it builds into a holy temple in the Lord. But here's what I want to point out. If we try to build upon a different foundation, or if we try to substitute a different cornerstone, then we will not grow into a holy temple. The household of God will be compromised. It will be compromised because we have substituted our agenda for God's. For what he has laid, what he has established, what he has done, period. And the consequences of that could not be more dire. Because we're not, only we, not only are we God's household, Paul says, but we're also God's dwelling place. We're God's temple. And here's what he says in verse 22. Look at verse 22. That, the, the aspect of being God's temple or God's dwelling place, here's what I want you to see. That can only happen together, verse 22 says, in whom you are also being built together in, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This concept is so important to Paul that he actually combined two Greek words there into one to, to convey its importance to you and I. How are we built? We are built together. How are we sanctified? Sanctified together. How do we grow into a holy temple in the Lord? We are being joined together and we are being built together upon the foundation and cornerstone that God has set us upon, which is Christ and his word. Christ and his word. This is the new power we have. The new power that we have, friends, do you get it? Is one another, one another by the spirit. That is the power that we have, the power working together to be built up. Typically, we think about we think this in terms of personal holiness and our own individual relationship with Jesus. No, what Paul is drawing our attention here to, friends, is our heavenly family, that we are doing this together. God the Father, you and I, we can access him together. God the Son, you and I, we have peace together 
with him and with one another. And God the Spirit, you and I, bring us together, bring us together to the Father through prayer and fellowship. You have me and I have you. And together we are being built upon Christ and his word into a dwelling place for the great and glorious triune God. That is beautiful. And that is the promise of God for us, friends. That is a promise that you and I, we can trust. I pray that that would be your prayer, your trust as we go from here. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this beautiful picture here in Ephesians 2, a picture of identity, of being a citizen of your kingdom, of being a family, that we are brothers and sisters, and that you are our Heavenly Father. And Lord, you are creating us into a, a beautiful temple, that that temple is ever expanding through the ministry of your word. Lord, and if we were ever to substitute that for something else, Lord, it would be detrimental. It would be dangerous to us as a church. It would be dangerous to our unity. It would be dangerous to our growth as a church because that is the foundation you have set your church, your people upon, your family upon. Lord, help us to grow. We want to continue to grow in holiness together. We want to be built up into a dwelling place for you. We ask that you're that you would dwell in this place more and more and that that realization would, would become more and more to us here at Westside Church. And Lord, that would be a realization for us uh, in our families as we go from here, as we do family worship this week, as we reflect upon the sermon, as we reflect upon, uh, Lord, uh, the Lord's Supper that we're about to participate in. We pray that, uh, God, we would be reminded that we are your dwelling place and that you are building us up together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.